At the risk of sounding very stupid or very boring, I'm going to try to explain this essential concept from the field of philosophy known as the law of personal identity. It goes something like this. If each thing and creature in the world is identical only to itself, meaning that only one of them can exist, then a dilemma arises. Can a person or thing change without losing their identity? If so, how much change can occur without that person or thing becoming someone or something else? Malcolm, I don't think those questions are boring or stupid at all. I do think they're complicated and possibly even a little existential. Also, I wonder if there's a simpler way to think about the concept. I mean, it seems like what we're talking about is whether identity is fixed or fluid. Yeah, and I'm not sure there's an answer to that. Some philosophers have argued that, yes, identity is constant, and the idea that our identity can change is really an illusion. We simply find different ways of expressing the same identity over time. Whereas others believe that identity can change, the idea that we are a compilation of multiple selves over time, a composite identity of sorts. And I wonder if whether we think about identity as fixed or fluid or both, depending on the person and the context, the relationship between how others perceive us and how we perceive ourselves has a significant impact over what identity we claim and how we relate to the identities and intersections that we occupy. Today, it's widely recognized that people can have various intersecting and overlapping identities, religion, class, orientation, gender, race, the list goes on. And yet, when it comes to certain elements of identity, we're still arguing over the same fundamental divide. Are they fixed or are they fluid? Just think about the debate over gendered bathrooms in the last few years and the intensity surrounding it. On the one side are people who maintain a static understanding of gender identity that's assigned based on one's sex organs at birth. And on the other side are people who say that identity is based on one's personal conception of themselves, which can be informed by any number of factors. While I find all of this fascinating, identity is not only philosophical, it's personal. I'm Malcolm Burnley, a biracial journalist, among many other things. And I'm Dara Lise Lyons, a multifaceted biracial woman. And this is the On Being Biracial podcast, in which we're primarily focused on racial identification, especially on this episode focused on identity. But we thought it would be helpful to find corollaries beyond race to help frame the discussion of identity and how people who may be perceived by others to be of a certain identity might not see their own identity in the same way or use the same language to describe the same ancestry, or even to describe similar experiences. In my conversation with my brother Ian Burnley, an artist and educator, he found corollaries too. A number of years ago, I listened to this interview on an art podcast, and it was a conversation between an artist and this art historian curator. The artist's name is Greg Bordowitz. And he's both an artist and an activist. He appeared in the 2012 film, How to Survive a Plague, which was about activism around the AIDS epidemic, which began in the 80s. And he identifies as a man and gay and or queer. He had a conversation with this art historian, curator, writer named David Getze, and they were talking about queerness, but something about the conversation really stood out to me. And it's always stuck with me in terms of identity. So I'm just going to quote this guy, David Getze. He said, 
queerness has come to stand in for a different kind of identity. One of the things that people talk about now is that queerness stands in for a kind of umbrella identity. And one that's quite fixed and stable and easily recognizable, which is actually contradictory to the, to the conceptual notion that drove it in the first place. And so one of the things that's important is to keep in mind that there's, well, from the queer theory side, one of the, the crucial things is that it's an anti-essentialist mode of thinking about identity, that it's not about things being hardwired one way or the other, but rather a mode of thinking away from that kind of simplistic, unchanging model of who we are. Now, I don't know what it's like to be gay or queer. I've always identified as being a straight man, straight cisgender man. But I do know what it's like to have an identity that's unstable or unfixed. And there's something about that quote that really resonates with me and can, I think, really be applied to being multiracial. I think being biracial or multiracial is an identity that's temporal, meaning it's tied to time, and it's also tied to context, that to understand how a multiracial person thinks about themselves, you have to look at the context in which they're living, and that their identity can change over time. I'm not even talking about passing, which is like a whole nother conversation, but I'm talking about code switching. Like I, I speak differently depending on the people that are around me. But I think also like the passing is so much about outwardly, but I think also a lot of what you're talking about in terms of kind of like inwardly to it. Like how did, how did they identify or see themselves depends on context and temporality too. Totally. And even the, the country you're living in, like in the United States, mm-hmm. we have one idea about race. It's still grounded in this black and white thing. Other countries have different ideas of what it means to be of a certain background or race, or there's different language around it, different language about being mixed race. I really appreciated that Ian brought that Getsy interview to our attention, and we'll link to the Bad at Sports podcast episode in the show notes. But listening to Getsy speaking about taking an anti-essentialist mode to identity, there was so much I could relate to. Certainly, there are many differences between racial and gender identity conversations and experiences, but there are also parallels. Samante Cruz, also an artist, is a metalsmith living in British Columbia. They spoke about how it was their identity as a multiracial or mixed-race person that enabled them to understand their non-binary identity. They even used the term mixed gender to refer to their gender identity. I never felt like a girly girl or anything like that. Most of my young memories around gender are like fighting with my mom about what I was going to wear to church. I was being like, oh, like, you know, her wanting me to wear dresses. And then like finally coming to terms, there was this one stretchy pair of pants she was fine with and I was fine with. And I was like, I just (laughs) basically wore those pants like every Sunday for two years (laughs) or whatever. I think when I was really young, I just never really identified with gender. I felt like I was Samante gendered. That gender is like a mix of male and female and genderqueer and other things. And I'm somebody who really believes that everybody has their own unique gender. Some people can get clumped in with others, but uh, I think it's all very nuanced and it's a construct. 
we put it on like we like we put on clothes and some people have thought about it more than others and i think yeah trans folks are are people who who are engaged in thinking about that and and seeing it not as a binary as a spectrum and i think being multiracial that clicked right in and so being mixed race i felt like say mixed gender it would because i have kind of mixed race before mixed gendered it's like people can kind of make that connection of okay i know what being mixed race is i don't necessarily know what being mixed gendered is but i can you know infer some meaning from that identity is something that ideally if we're introspective and accumulating new life experiences as well as gaining better understandings of our prior experiences we will learn more about over time and as we evolve we'll find new categories that may give us a better sense of or better language with which to articulate who we've been who we are and who we're becoming dear lisa i wanted to go back to this notion of race and gender for a moment and really what we might frame as non-binary or spectrum understandings of identity as opposed to binary understandings whether we think about things like age ability race sexuality or any number of other identity categories it's helpful to recognize that identity doesn't have to be seen as binary there are more ways to look at ourselves and others yeah and to me that's the beauty of being a journalist who specifically explores topics related to diversity equity and inclusion It's given me the opportunity to see the variety and complexity and also the similarities and parallels that comprise human identities and experiences. In your TEDx talk, Black or White, Refusing to Choose and Embracing Biracial Identity, you pointed out not just the parallels to exploring and embracing non-binary identity, but also the parallels that can happen in terms of the negative impact of identity suppression, denial, and restriction by society. When any person is forced to deny their truth, whether by society, culture, or family, there are negative ramifications. For example, when we look at gender identity, all the evidence conclusively demonstrates that the damage people suffer due to their non-binary identity is caused not by the identity itself, but by suppression and repression. Much as defining gender in solely binary terms has been perpetuating genderism, defining race in solely binary terms is part of a system of identity denial and suppression that is keeping racism alive within the United States. Yeah, Malcolm, to me all oppressions are linked and oppression of people of certain identities as well as suppression of those identities is really problematic. Actually, in our conversations with folks this season, we talked a lot about how identity suppression can come up even within ourselves as we start to acknowledge different aspects and elements of our identities or define ourselves differently. It can feel like, wait, I've always been this person or I've always identified in this way. Am, am I allowed to change that or what What will it mean if I identify differently? Or will people accept me as I am? And this brings us back to the questions we asked at the beginning of this episode. What I found for myself is that it's helpful to think of identity or at least definitions of identity as fluid as opposed to fixed. Chantel Fitzgerald, founder and CEO of Mindset Strategies, feels the same way and has experienced that identity fluidity herself. Chantel is someone who formerly identified as Black all the time and in every space. And now she identifies as mixed or multiracial in certain spaces and as Black in others. Here's what she had to say about this idea of identity evolution. 
I think your identity is, it's ever evolving as well as you're changing. And we're constantly changing as human beings. We're constantly experiencing new things. So our identities are constantly being changed also in terms of how we identify and our experiences are sharpening or not our identities. Whether we describe the phenomenon as identity sharpening or identity evolution or fluidity, approximately 30% of multiracial individuals will change how we identify over the course of our lives. That's according to a study from the Pew Research Center. What's also fascinating about that data point is that the researchers at Pew found an equal number of people who once identified as multiracial and now see themselves as one race, as they found people who formerly saw themselves as one race and now identify as multiracial. And this research has been corroborated by others, such as Sarah Gaither, a professor and researcher at Duke University. The other thing I would say is most multiracial studies in any field would argue that a multiracial person changes their identities a couple times across their lifespan. I know that's been the case for me. I previously identified as Black, then other, then mixed, and the interviews in the podcast have caused me to reconsider my racial identity again. I still shift how I speak about myself and my race depending on the context and the space I'm in and which parts of myself I want to emphasize based on who I'm with, which I acknowledge to be its own particular kind of privilege. I'm glad you brought that up. Many of those we spoke with for this series shared about their own changing relationships with identity categories and the pain and privilege that can come with that. I talked about this topic with Drew Almond, the project director of VTech, the Virginia Tribal Education Consortium. Drew, who is a white and indigenous citizen of the Upper Metapanai Indian tribe in King William, Virginia, shared that he's claimed his indigenous heritage to different degrees at different points in his life. I think it has shifted a few times. I think of when I was very young, really taking a lot of pride in the native part of my identity. As I got older, I think around prepubescent, pubescent teen, between that age, it became harder to explain that to people. And it became almost a burden to have to explain because living in Philadelphia, which a lot of people don't realize that indigenous people, 70% of them in the United States, at least as of 2015, when I read this stat, 70% of those people live in cities. So they're around us. They don't necessarily look like you expect them to look. They're just people living in a city. But I remember having a hard time explaining that to people who don't have, aren't surrounded, aren't living in Indian country. So there was that there was the desire to be normal when you're a teenager and, and fit in. And I think rode with that for a while and, and didn't really think a lot about that part of myself, the non-white part of myself. One of the reasons our identities either shift or can be difficult to claim comes back not to how we see ourselves or who we know ourselves to be, but to how we're perceived and treated. There are many other reasons too, such as the communities we come from and the circumstances in which we're raised. John Blake is an award-winning journalist and author of More Than I Imagined, What a Black Man Discovered About the White Mother He Never Knew. John grew up in a neighborhood in which whiteness was reviled. What I tell people is I grew up as a closeted biracial person. I wouldn't tell anyone that my mom was white. I mocked her race as black on school forms. None of my friends knew. It was a mark of shame in the world that I grew up in to have a white mom. That's not to say John would have identified otherwise if that hadn't been the case, especially since. It was like 
I came into the world with half of my identity was amputated. I knew nothing about this whole side of my family. My mom, they were all absent. You'll hear more of John's story later in the season. For now, we'd simply like to say that so many factors go into how a person identifies. In his TED Talk, Facts Don't Change People, But This Will, John Blake began with what he was told about his mother. I grew up in an inner-city Black neighborhood in Baltimore without ever knowing my mother. She vanished from my life not long after I was born. No one in my family told me why she disappeared. I didn't know what she looked like or even if she was alive. All I was told was this. Your mother's name is Shirley. She's white and her family hates black people. As we discussed in episode two, other people shouldn't be the arbiters of our identities. But at the same time, there's no denying that life experiences shape how we see ourselves and which communities we feel like we belong to and which communities welcome us in. Malcolm, your discussion with Rachel Lauren really illuminated that point. Rachel is a DEI practitioner who identifies as Black while at the same time embracing and celebrating her Puerto Rican heritage. What we know is that race is a social construct and it's based on appearance. It's how someone sees you when they first meet you. And that could be skin color, that could be features. There are things that make people make an assumption on what race is, and that's how you get profiled, right? And so when someone sees me, they tend to think this is a Black woman. I present as Black, and I do see myself as a Black woman, but that doesn't mean that I don't acknowledge the Puerto Rican ancestry that I have. That is what I consider my ethnicity. That's the culture that I celebrate, the traditions, the food, the stories, that it all relates to Puerto Rico. My mother was born and raised there. That's how I see it. And I think that if you think about race as a social construct, people that are biracial, unfortunately, it takes them having to speak about what biracial means for them oftentimes. I mean, some people do look racially ambiguous, but oftentimes if you are biracial and you are Black in in any capacity, you might present as a Black person. So it actually would take you to speak about the other things. My own journey around that, I'm certainly much more in the racially ambiguous (laughs) ambiguous camp. My dad's black and my mom's white. I always identified as black. Pretty much up until my early 20s, mid-20s. And I think where I came down was similar. It was a similar argument, but just my experience around the world and how they perceived me was ambiguous. And so it felt ultimately more appropriate, I guess, for me to identify as mixed because it felt like some of what, if race is a social construct, what was being thrown back at me was questions or ambiguity. So it felt more, I guess, appropriate to my experience to use that label. But it's still tricky because when the census comes, I have checked black for other reasons, for political reasons, for in terms of not wanting to diminish the black political base, you know what I mean? Resources get allocated. So there's a lot that goes into making those those choices about how you identify and how other people perceive you. This whole conversation and all of its complexity brings up a lot of confusion. I mean, basing identity on other people's perceptions can override individual experience and identity affinity. But then by the same token, someone can hold a certain identity and yet how the world perceives them can be completely different than that. Right. I think Chantel said it really well. 
I think mixed identity is, I feel like tricky, right? And and at least for me, it's tricky because people perceive you differently and in so many different ways. And, and you can also pass for, for anything. I think identity is ever evolving as we evolve as humans and as we constantly change. And for me, I continue to struggle with this mixed race slash black identity as well. And I also think sometimes I feel like, well, am I a fraud (laughs) to sometimes to the black community because I'm not fully black. So I, I feel like I still struggle with that. And then at the end of the day, it's also just being confident in who you are and accepting all of you and being happy about and accepting all that you are and living your life to the best you can and serving and supporting others to the best you can. At the end of the day, that's usually the most important, but just saying it's ever evolving and I'm, I'm ever evolving. The ability to be in the process of evolution and self-awareness and social awareness is important. Lisa Funderburg, the author of the 1994 book, Black, White, Other, shared how powerful it was for her to hear about the experiences of other Black and white biracial people and how their relationships to their identities have shifted depending on the context. I was really affirmed by and took away a powerful sense of the plasticity of identity, of how contextual our identities are and how normal that is, where I think a lot of what is attached to mixed race experience and seen as pathological is that contextual identity, is our code switching and our fluidity Mm -hmm. and our shifts. I felt empowered by this chorus of voices and chorus of experiences that feeling that way was not a sign of maladjustment, but in fact, adjustment and reality. Lisa went on to say that race is a construct and is both meaningless and imbued with significance. It's a paradox or a contradiction. On the one hand, we're saying this is not real. And on the other hand, we're saying the effects of this unreal belief system are real, endemic, deathly, generationally traumatizing, financially and educationally impactful. I think that one of the things that's really striking about this construct is how invisible it is to some of the people who are in our world and how not just visible, but constantly visible it is. And I'm overgeneralizing, but I'm saying I think there are a lot of people not subjugated by the construct, which Mm. would pretty much be white people who don't feel it, who live in the invisibility of it. It's everywhere, Mm. but not everybody acknowledges it or understands that it's out there. Being subjugated by the constructs of race makes a person aware of race. And at the same time, living within a construct that feels untrue is only sustainable for so long before a person breaks under the weight of it. Rachel Goh, for example, one of the creators and hosts of the Mixed Movement podcast, shared about her transition to embracing her multiracial identity and how painful it was to deny it. How did you identify when you were growing up? White. Interesting. And how about now? Mixed. 
at what point did that transition happen? And was there something that happened that was a pivot point for you? Ultimately, I would say about five years ago, I'd had this awakening of my being after becoming a mother. It's really interesting. I felt a little see-through after becoming a mom. And I worked through that. And then I realized, hey, I do have a voice. Hey, it's time to wake up and learn to love who you are, all of you, every part of you. You matter. And let's get down to learning about you. Because I've spent my whole life identifying as white because that's what I was raised around. I married a white man. All of my friends were white. I lived in Hawaii and all my friends were white. (laughs) Although knowing that part of my heritage is African-American and that is why I have curly hair and dark skin and dark eyes and I tan well. It really was that moment where I was like, okay, I can't continue living, feeling so see-through. I don't even know who I am. Let's get to learn who I am is when I fully started to embrace every part of me, my heritage, my hair, my skin, everything. That's not to say that a person of multiracial ancestry who identifies as one race isn't embracing all of who they are. The point is that no one should feel pressured to identify a certain way, and that many of those we spoke with feel like something is lost if they aren't given the choice to identify themselves. Here are some voices owning their identities as they see them. My mom is white, my dad is black, and I personally identify as as both. Yeah, I guess it's always been just biracial, that identifier. So I identify as biracial. If someone were to ask me what I am, I say I'm biracial. I usually just say I'm Egyptian American or I'm mixed or I'm Swana American. I have this mixed identity thing and I had to always explain who I am. I say that I'm a half white person, a half American Indian person. I usually use the word indigenous because I just find it to be less ambiguous. I identify as multiracial or mixed race, Filipino. The newer word that I like to use is Filipinx because it's a gender neutral word. And I feel like when I heard that word, it encompassed my identity as like a queer person and a trans person, as well as being a Filipino person. And I say, I'm negra. You are seeing me as a black person and you are treating me as a black person. But I have always identified as white. And yeah, and I am just, I'm just a biracial dude. And I'll, I'll go into different situations and say that I'm black for this reason, or I am white for this reason. I've landed as being biracial, biracial man. And I just feel that being black identifying or white identifying, which is what I was at some point, just wasn't really connecting well with me at all. But right now, I feel very more connected and a lot better that I am just being mixed identifying. Well, I tell people I'm racially fluid. Sometimes I say I'm Black. Sometimes I say I'm biracial. But I identify primarily as Black because I grew up in that culture. But my father told me once, he says, if you deny that you're biracial, you're denying your mom. So I think for the purposes of this podcast, I think call me biracial is fine. I think it fits. Now, it's important to note that the voices you heard aren't necessarily a representative sample of the country. For one thing, we spoke to an outsized number of Philadelphians, because that's where both Darylise and I are based, and because we partnered with Philly-based news outlets to create this podcast. 
Those partners, by the way, are the Philadelphia Journalism Collaborative, powered by Resolve Philly, Word Radio, and Philadelphia Neighborhoods, along with our brilliant producer, Emily, from Covenda Media. Also, when we put out a call for interviewees for a podcast with biracial in the name of it, we can only assume that there was some self-selection that happened. People who thought about themselves as mixed or multiracial were, we assume, more likely to answer that call. In 2015, the Pew Research Center found that more than half of multiracial people don't actually consider themselves multiracial and instead identify with a singular race. By the way, for the purposes of that study, Pew considered anyone to be multiracial if their parents or grandparents were of different races. Despite that, we chose to use the biracial label in the name of our show for a reason. It's because for so long, people have been forced to choose a singular category or pick other. It's only recently that the idea of embracing an umbrella category, similar to how Getsy described with the emergence of queer identity, has become possible. Word Radio is Philadelphia's home for progressive Black talk media. For 20 years, WURD has been the voice of the community, providing information, insights, and conversations on the issues that matter to Black people in Philadelphia and beyond. From politics to pop culture, wellness to wealth, Word Radio's dynamic hosts cover news through a progressive Black lens and perspective. Tune in for live programming every day at wordradio.com. Download the Word Radio app or listen in Philadelphia on 900 AM or 96.1 FM. Follow Word Radio on social media to mark your calendar for an exciting variety of community events and become a member of the Forward Movement to show your support for progressive Black talk media. Charlotte Gill, author of Almost Brown, a mixed-race family memoir, spoke about the importance of a group identity around the multiracial experience, even if people's mixtures of ancestry may all be different. I think we are an umbrella group, and I'm really encouraged, and it makes me feel optimistic to know that there is sort of a huge range of experiences that are acceptable, a huge range of identities that are acceptable within the mixed community. And I know that, of course, there's a lot of stuff that we don't have in common, but there are a lot of shared experiences. And yeah, I I mean, I just feel as if there must be some kind of growing awareness of this, especially in a place like the United States, where something like 300% growth in mixed race identity, at least according to the census, between 2021, I believe was your last census, and 2011. So more people are thinking about it, more people are feeling more comfortable applying that ethnicity to themselves. Later in the interview, Charlotte continued. I want to say that I am not an authority on this, and probably everything that I have to say about it, everything that I've thought about it is terribly unscientific. This is just based on my own feelings. I feel like a biracial person. I feel as if I am white and I am also South Asian. That's how I feel. And I know there must be other people out there who feel similarly torn by having to make a choice. So I wonder, wouldn't it be fair to allow a little room for people to have these mixed identities 
when we are so often pushed into racial pigeonholes. I know the pigeonholes exist for a reason, sometimes very good reasons, but everywhere now there is increased flexibility when it comes to self-declarations of identity. And I feel as if a biracial mixed race category would be great, welcome for me anyway. If you accept race as like a social construct, as it's often talked about, how society has constructed or perceived me, how I've related to that, due to getting the what are you questions and everything we've we've touched on, it is neither of my separate mixtures or heritages. I am both, but also my experience and how I've related to that construct has been a unique and distinct one, right? It's not just a blend of the two. There's also something about being a question mark to people that I think has informed who I am for better or for worse. And so having a category that might acknowledge that in some way, as opposed to just saying check both is another reason why for me, I've often thought about it being important. Yeah, I agree 100%. I feel as if there is a distinct conglomerate of people with overlapping shared experiences that come from being mixed race or biracial. Sienna McWhorter was in her senior year of high school in Australia and was conducting a project about biracial identity when she contacted me to interview me for her research. I then, in turn, interviewed her for our project, and she felt similarly to Charlotte about not wanting to be pressured into choosing a side. I'm very strong about what I identify as. I do identify as biracial, and I don't want to be, not forced in a way, but pushed to choose one more than the other and in that situation I felt that and since I'm quite a strong-willed and like confident person I wouldn't be easily like persuaded or pushed you know I'll stand up for what I believe in. Yes identity autonomy is essential and society shouldn't pressure people to diminish themselves in any way. At the same time the one drop rule remains a governing phenomenon within the United States. And there are many people who feel that while, yes, it arose as a way to structurally and legally enforce racism and white supremacy, doing away with it would strip some people of their sense of belonging within their communities. Hannah Wallace, a nonprofit professional who majored in African studies at Temple University, spoke about how identity gatekeeping is problematic and leads to people feeling like they're not enough of any race. Here's a portion of our conversation and what she speaks about the one drop rule. Yeah, I mean, it's a it was a racist policy that was put in place and it's carried on and it still carries on to this day, not so much in the way that it originally was, because now we do have, I guess, the ability to identify ourselves. It's one of those things now it exists more so here than on paper. When she said here, Hannah pointed to her head. She then continued. I think it, it is worth questioning, of course. We shouldn't have to be bound by the laws that one were racist and two put in place centuries ago, literally. Not to say that I, I don't agree with it. I, I don't agree with it. I think that it oftentimes then comes back to this conversation of who can identify as Black, which then turns into a gatekeeping conversation, which then turns into a colorism conversation, because you can have biracial people who are darker skin who wouldn't even be questioned as being Black, but they are biracial. They just have more melanin in their skin. So then at that point, then, okay, then if we are working off of color, then let's call it what it is. I understand like gatekeeping through the one drop rule is to keep white pure. So it's not to say that that's what 
black folks that are saying who is black and who is not black you can't call it same thing but it's always more complicated than that i guess is is the thing it's always more complicated as complicated as it is acknowledging the way that racial identity works at least in the us can help to explain it in speaking with W. Kamau Bell, a comedian, documentarian, and father of three biracial daughters, I appreciated how he and his wife, Melissa, explained in plain terms to their daughters the boundaries of racial identification, while at the same time giving them the space to choose their own conceptions of themselves, to find language to describe who they are, and for their language and self-conceptions to develop over the course of their lives. The thing I did was I told them at some point, and I actually haven't done this with my four-year-old yet because she I just think she's not there. She's not there yet. She's gone through it. She was raised during a pandemic. She's gone through a lot. We've talked a lot about her race, but I had a conversation with both of them at some point. I was like, look, here's how this works. This is the Sammy and Juno. Here's what you can say, and this is my version of it, and they have turned it into something else. You can say I'm half black, half white. You can say I'm black. You can say I'm mixed or whatever, you know, but the thing you can't say is I'm white. And for me, that was a way of going, that's not how racial categorization works in this country. And you don't want to look like you don't know that. You don't want to be out there as a person, especially like Juno is a different fact. She could actually maybe get away with it. But like, you don't want to be out there. That's not how it works in this country. Again, I'm subscribing to the one drop rule. Like you can't say I'm white. And so that was the thing I said to them early on about like, I want you to understand here's how it works in this country. These are the things that you can and can't say. The thing that they did and the thing that a lot of those kids do, I never said to them, and I don't think Melissa ever said to them, you're both or you're equal on both sides. I didn't say that. They have interpreted, and I think a lot of this is about they're surrounded by a lot of mixed kids. Who knows what conversations they're having? Also, they're surrounded by a lot of just general, you can be who you want to be talk and inclusion. And, you know, we live in the Bay Area. They go to the crunchy granola school, you know, all those things. So I think they're taking what I say, what Melissa says, they're taking what they're seeing at school and the posters and and sort of turning it into their own thing. So I do feel like the way they would say answered about their racial categorization is not that's not the way I told it to them, but it's the way they're living it. And I'm aware and I've said this since I've had these kids, even the term mixed, which is how they're identifying themselves now, just like you said, biracial. When I was growing up, that was biracial. They don't say biracial, but I would imagine by the time they're adults, they will be saying something else. Our conclusion, as well as the research we've conducted, shows that it's not necessarily how people identify that matters, but that they're provided the opportunity to own, embrace, and integrate their identities, and to be affirmed by others. Here's Sarah Gaither again. What most research would argue is that if you do claim all of your identities or both of your racial identities, the more integrated those identities are, the less mental health consequences you might face. Usually it's because you're growing up in an environment where you're more free to identify however it is you want to. I think identity autonomy is the real takeaway from most of our work is that I'm not here to tell anyone they should identify one way or the other. It's that forced identification that tends to make people feel badly about themselves. So if you are mixed, and to be fair, lots of people in the US are mixed by lineage because of slavery and other things in our history. If you are mixed, but really only claim one of your identities doesn't mean you're going to have horrible mental health consequences, right? If you were in an environment where you freely chose to identify just as Black or Asian or whatever, that should lead to just as positive outcomes for you too. But on average, this identity flexibility component does seem to be strongest for people who claim their multiple selves. 
And obviously, depending on what racial mixture you are, we have different phenotypicality or physical appearance options, right, that you may have. A lot of our work doesn't find that phenotypicality matters for how a biracial person necessarily identifies internally. It could, someone like myself, a good example where I very much identify with the Black community, but you would never know that I'm Black by looking at me. Where it does tend to matter more so is if you care more about how society is treating you or if you used experiences of discrimination or prejudice as a pathway to racial or ethnic identification, your physical appearance are going to play a much larger role in that identity development in those cases. But there's not, again, a ton of work looking at the role that phenotypicality plays, at least for multiracial identification. We've done a lot of work with what we call priming in psychology. So we'll get a biracial person to think of one of their racial identities over the other, we find it does shift temporarily how much you claim that one part of yourself, but it doesn't move how much you identify as being biracial. So that level of identification doesn't move at all, which suggests that it really is this kind of internal level of identification that you're choosing for you, regardless of what a person may look like. It does matter a lot more when you come into interracial interactions of someone perceives you as only being white or only being black that outward perceiver is going to treat you very differently depending on how you look. So again, it's this interaction between your internal identification and how these perceivers might be treating you on a daily basis. This brings us back to the law of personal identity. The interaction between who we know ourselves to be and how we're perceived by and treated by others matters a lot. Some people want so badly to be seen as who they are that even when being true to themselves carries consequences, they will make the choice to assert their identities. For example, Carter O'Brien Ford, an actor and playwright who splits his time between New York and Philadelphia, shared about how, when he was younger, he would first assert and then apologize for his biracial identity. Someone said this to me recently. Somebody had said something along the words that I was like the antithesis or like just the opposite of blissful ignorance because they said that I would constantly be upset with myself or constantly loathe or constantly be just upset with life and the non-happiness that I was having. But I kept trying to teach myself new things and kept trying to teach other people new things and be like, this is the way that we should live. And I was very adamant that I was biracial for a while. And the way that I describe a lot of these light passing people, even if they do know a little bit in their head that they're like, you know, I am black and maybe I should do something about it. They just push it out. And then even if it is very purposeful, they're still blissfully ignorant to everything else. They're just like, well, my life is happy. So my life is happy. Somebody recently told me I was the emphasis as to blissful ignorance because I just was never blissful. I was never really happy, but I was constantly being like, well, I am biracial and there's nothing you can do about it. I love both my parents. These are both my parents. I'm not black. I'm not white. I am black. I am white, but I'm not one without the other. That's it. And I would be very headstrong about that. And then someone would be like, I'm upset with you about it. And I'd be like, how can I make it better? And if there was nothing I could do to make it better, I'd be like, let me just disappear into the background. I am the person who just made the statement. I'm biracial, nothing else. Don't force your identity on me. But I'm also the person going, I'm just going to slowly fade away and you never have to deal with me again. I just wanted to tell you that that's my identity because those are my parents and that's my family and you won't take that away from me. In future episodes, you'll hear more about the harm Carter experienced as a result of other people's discomfort with his in-between identity and what it cost him to publicly embrace his identity, especially during his school years. 
But to be clear, even though throughout this 10-episode series and the prior three-episode series featuring youth voices, we've shared some stories of pain and struggle, that's not the whole picture by any means. And it wouldn't be an accurate depiction of the depth and breadth of emotions and experiences that comprise the lives of people of any identity. Darylise and I don't want to perpetuate the tragic mulatto trope. That's the age-old stereotype that frames mixed-race people as self-loathing and isolated, lacking agency in a world that draws clear delineations by race. Because that's not been our experience, or the experience of those we interviewed. At the same time, there can be a lot of pain associated with being a multiracial person within the United States. Here's Kamau Bell again, speaking about navigating that line between conveying the conflict that many of us experience, even from the moment of conception, and recognizing that our lives are not, or at least don't have to be, tragic, especially when a person is willing to wrestle with the reality of how race operates in society, in their lives, and even within their own families. I do think that there's something about multiracial kids where a lot of them have the conflict of America in their DNA. And so they're more in that conversation when they don't even want to be just by nature of the existence. So I think that does lend you to have those conversations. I said, I don't think it's an accident. Some of the angriest, most militant black people ever in this country were light skinned black folks. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Malcolm X, Ice-T, the list goes on and on. Oh, Bob Marley was mixed. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's, I think there's something about the fact that people who have it in their DNA, and not that we would describe Malcolm X as mixed, I think his mom, was, but again, something about like when you have the America's conflict in your body, you sometimes ha- have a better way analysis on it than other people do. You know, it's interesting because you describe it as America's conflict in your body. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. And you also talked about not wanting to do a project that emphasizes the tragic mulatto stereotype or brings that to the forefront. And so how do you navigate that fact that, yeah, we might hold the conflict of America in our bodies and also it doesn't have to be a tragic narrative? I think because we're showing people actively wrestling with it. I think when I think of the tragic mulatto, I think somebody who's like almost a victim of their DNA and it feels homeless in some sense and isn't really fighting back against it. That I mean, when I think of that tragic mulatto stereotype, I think of somebody who's like, I don't fit in anywhere and I'm just going to sit here nowhere, you know? Whereas I think that like when you think of somebody like Greg, who's in there with his niece, Kaylin. For context, Greg and Kaylin are two of the people interviewed in Kamau Bell's latest film, 1000% Me on HBO. Greg is Kaylin's uncle. Greg's an adult. He's in his 30s. And that dude is out there fighting for his identity and fighting for the identity for the mixed kids behind him so they don't have to fight as hard. So I feel like that's where it gets less like the tragic mulatto because he's not letting it he's not letting it go by. There's a section in the movie where Kaylin says something very vulnerable, her mom not checking her off as black when she went to high school. And she's like, no, my mom's going to get mad. And she says it. And then Greg says he's talking about how his mom, who was white, did not have access to the race conversation. He wasn't interested. And he says he looks at the camera, goes, sorry, mom, as he starts to tell the story. And afterwards, I talked to both of their moms just to see how they were doing. Kaylin's mom was like, you know what I was doing, though, right? You understand? I was like, yeah, that's why in the doc, I, I sort of got your back because I was like, I get what she was doing. And Greg's mom looked a little bit a little bit caught in the headlights. But Greg was like, I'm happy this came out because now we are going to have a new conversation. That's brave. Yeah, no, super brave. And Greg was a consultant on the film, so he could have said, pull that out. I don't know that we would have, but he certainly could have been. He did not say, pull that out. The one thing he did say was about Kaylin's mom. He's like, can we figure out a way to sort of like give her some grace? And I was like, absolutely, I can do that because I felt that same thing. Like, I don't think her mom is wrong. I think her mom is trying to navigate white supremacy. 
We'll talk more about family dynamics in episodes eight and nine, but I want to say that this concept of grappling with and wrestling with race doesn't have to be viewed as entirely negative, because in some ways it speaks to the changing nature of race, and by extension, the changes in conversations. On Being Biracial is funded by the Philadelphia Journalism Collaborative, a partnership of 29 local newsrooms focusing on issues that affect the daily lives of Philadelphia residents. The PJC is dedicated to bridging the divide between communities and journalists and increasing community-centered, solutions-based journalism that promotes inclusivity and equity in news reporting. To find out more, go to resolvephilly.org PJC. Jewel Love, the biracial founder of Black Executive Men, an executive coach and a licensed therapist, had some interesting thoughts to share towards the end of our interview. I think about what's going on in the U.S. regarding mixed race identity, where that's going. Yeah. Do you mind if I please speak to that briefly? Yeah, please. And I say briefly because I don't have much to say on it other than I know that there is a healing to be had around how race is viewed, discussed in the United States that would make it much more honest to the level of mixing that does happen and has happened in the United States, how much more common it is than I think people know or acknowledge and how normal it is as well. Something I've learned here in Mexico and Latin America and being able to embrace it more. I know it's going to do wonders for mixed people's mental health that have some of the same questions that I had about where do I belong? Where do I fit in? Can I own both parts of myself and just feeling whole, complete and celebrated as a mixed person? So I'm excited to see where where that goes in the United States. I can only just imagine it going in a positive place for mixed people in general. Yeah. So thank you for letting me share that. Things are changing and there's more of an embrace and the statistics bear that out. Absolutely. The multiracial population nearly tripled between 2010 and 2020 based on census numbers, which reflects not only more multiracial births, but also people who have always been mixed feeling empowered to identify that way. And for some, making that choice has been influenced by changes to the way the census is taken. Mark Hugo Lopez, who is the director of Spanish research at the Pew Research Center and was one of the co-authors of Pew's 2015 Multiracial in America report, which we've referenced several times already this season, spoke with our producer, Emily Previty, about the intentionality that went into giving people the option to select more than one race on the U.S. Census. 2000 is when the Census Bureau implements the opportunity for people to choose more than one race. And there was a lot of discussion prior to that about how might we do this, what are some of the philosophical underpinnings of it. When I was a professor at Maryland, in fact, some of my colleagues who were running the Institute for Philosophy and Public Policy had been contracted by the Census Bureau to write reports thinking about the philosophy behind even selecting more than one race. How might it be done? What's, what's the best way to do it? So they were one of many organizations that were hired in the 1990s to do this research to understand what it would mean to have the ability to select more than one race in a census. 2010 was the second one. And then 2020 is the third one. 
For nearly two centuries, the Census Bureau measured race through door knockers who went from house to house and filled out demographic information on behalf of the U.S. population. But there's been a shift over the last half century, first with the decision to allow the public to self-identify their own race on census forms, beginning in 1960, and then to provide more options for racial identification in the years since. In many ways, changes to the census have reflected a broadening consciousness around race and heritage. What seems to be a growing interest among the American public, people want to know about their heritage, their background, sometimes through a DNA tests like Ancestry.com or 23andMe, or just people talking to family to find out what their backgrounds are and to celebrate all of those backgrounds. But at the same time, we've seen a growing share of the U.S. public who are newlyweds, who are marrying somebody who's not of the same race or ethnicity. So you have more and more people who are in intermarriage and are ethnic interracial marriages than ever before. Their children are likely to wonder about or ask questions about their identity as they come of age, as they start to think about what their identity might be. And so I think that just because we're having an increase in the interracial interethnic marriage numbers, we're going to start to see more interest in people wanting to understand their backgrounds and in many ways honor, celebrate, or respect those pieces of their background that maybe they're not as familiar with, not necessarily to claim it, but just to acknowledge it. As Mark explained, since the year 2000, all Americans have had the option to select more than one race on the census. But when we change how we identify on an individual and group level, those decisions rarely exist in a vacuum. Policies are often created and measured using demographic data. And while having more categories and options hopefully allows people to be more accurately represented, it can also lead to confusion or underrepresentation. When thinking about the impact to statistics, changes to categories can get tricky. For example, do you double count a person who checks both Asian and Black on the census, measuring them as being part of each population? Or do you categorize that person as multiracial and remove them from both? A good example that illustrates this is how demographers have struggled to quantify Afro-Latinx people. I would say, though, that from our own work here at Pew Research, we've asked the U.S. adult population, do you consider yourself Afro-Latino? And we found that about 2% of all U.S. adults say, yes, they do. It's about 6 million people. The Census Bureau's approach takes people who say that they're Black and Hispanic, puts them together and says, ah, those are Afro-Latinos. That's a different approach. And it turns out that their population estimates maybe about 2.5, 3 million. So it's below our 6 million just for adults. And then when you look at the 6 million adults who we have identified in the population, not all of them will say they're Hispanic nor Black. In fact, some of them will say that their race is white, about 800,000 people. And so this mix of Afro-Latino identity is really something that's unique. It's not part of Hispanic identity alone. It's also got its own unique racial identity. And I think that's where there's potentially a challenge from my perspective. Again, how we identify is not only personal, it's also political. Just consider how many government resources get allocated based on census data. Things like research from the National Institutes of Health, public school funding, and even congressional redistricting are all influenced by racial population numbers. And as we change the categories, can we really trust decision makers to parse through all the various nuances? 
From a statistical standpoint, having more people who would have been categorized as one race pre-2000 now identifying as multiracial could be helpful in terms of specificity. However, it must be done thoughtfully in order to not undercount the traditional racial groups. For example, if researchers code multiracial people in the system as our own category rather than counting us in multiple populations, it's easy to see the negative impact. A politician could say that the Black population in an area is declining in order to justify cuts to race-based funding, whereas in truth, more people are just identifying as multiracial. As the stats around racial categorization become more splintered and more complicated, they can also be more exploitable. For this reason, I personally have continued to check Black on the census, despite the fact that I mostly identify as mixed when I meet people. When it comes to the census, I consider that a political choice more than anything. Again, identity can be fluid. Also, Malcolm, to elaborate even further, an umbrella multiracial category can lack nuance and can lead to confusing conclusions when conducting research or trying to allocate resources. Depending on a person's racial mixture, they may have access to different privileges than other multiracial counterparts of different backgrounds. Their health, economic, and educational outcomes may differ substantially, and if we're trying to come to conclusions on the basis of identity categories, multiracial categorization can make things complicated if we don't look more granularly and get a better sense of the stories behind the statistics. That was something that John Blake said in your conversation with him. When people ask me about being biracial, I think sometimes they expect me to talk about, well, I spent most of my life trying to figure out if I was white or black. But I tell them that was not my biggest internal struggle. My biggest internal struggle was between what I experienced as a journalist covering race and what I experienced is the son of this white mom and his black father, because the two conflicted. As a journalist, I became so cynical and jaded. I covered Rodney King, Ferguson, Charlottesville, and I thought white America will never change. White people can change. But yet in my private life, I'm seeing my Aunt Mary change in ways I never expected. And it wasn't like I preached to her or I showed her all these books. It was just the relationship we had again and again, just year after year, year after year. And it's why I tell people, facts don't change people, relationships do. To me, I, if facts drove people, would Trump be, would he be the Republican front runner? Because I thought as a journalist, if you show him that George Floyd video, if you show him that book from Kendi, if you just show them how pervasive racism is, that white America will change. I don't think that's enough. I think you have to have relationships. You have to have these kind of communities that demand those kind of relationships. We'll get back to John's powerful story of his mended relationship with his Aunt Mary in a future episode. And to the other point he made, the idea that identity questions are the central questions of our life isn't necessarily true either. But at the same time, these identity conversations are important in and of themselves and within a larger context. I appreciated John mentioning politics. Identifying as biracial, mixed, or multiracial can be a political statement as well as a statement of self-affirmation and group solidarity. Here's my brother Ian again. The difficulty in, in terms of a coalition of multiracial people is that our experiences are so individual. And it's it's definitely a growing community, but it's it's still a very small, dispersed community throughout, at least throughout the United States. So it's it's hard to find other people that are multiracial. I stumble into them, I meet people, but it can be hard to locate other people. 
within this community. But I do think if there is a common through line through all of our experiences, it's that it's an unfixed identity. I think that our relationship to our own background and how other people read us changes and will change over time. But I think just that in it of itself is a pretty powerful political statement saying that, hey, there's all these people that come from diverse family backgrounds and their parents come from different backgrounds, that all of these people together are really pushing up against the entire idea of identity and race and how people are defined. There are a lot of factors that go into why a person might identify a certain way. And also, there's something to be said for the fact that certain identities tend to carry similar experiences for a variety of people. And it can be affirming to recognize that and make sense of some of what we've gone through. My sister Tyla, for example, is a psychology teacher at a boarding school in Massachusetts. And she shared about racial identity development theory and how conceptions of monoracial identity development fail to capture the depth and breadth of her experience as a biracial person. We should note racial identity development models take different forms, such as wheels and ladders that visually show the stages of identity development and describe the ways in which members of a certain racial group find conformity, dissonance, immersion, internalization, and other identity development milestones. Here's Tyler. Doing social identity wheels and things like that, which make you have to understand more about yourself have been really helpful. So I think it's exercises like that or looking at frameworks like that and understanding, you know, we did this exercise in a professional development about your racial identity. And I wish I could give credit where credit is deserved. I'm just forgetting the author. She later remembered and texted me that the white racial identity model was developed by psychologist Janet Helms in 1990 and then expanded upon by others to incorporate and differentiate between a variety of racial identities. I remember there's a framework for if you were white, like these are the stages of racial exploration you go to and it was understanding your privilege and then feeling guilty and blah, blah, blah. And then it was, there was one for like black folks and it was a similar stepwise thing. That was different. And I remember once again being like, oh, I fit neither of these. So I'm going to take what I can from both of these. And I remember bringing that to the conversation in front of all of my faculty colleagues of being like, oh, I don't fit any of these, but I experienced both at different times than both frameworks and can find myself jumping around to feeling guilt, to feeling belonging, to feeling seen, to feeling whatever. I was like, but there should definitely be one for biracial folks. There should be identity wheels and identity ladders for biracial folks and cultural mirrors and increased representation. And movies and documentaries and podcasts like this one that are reflective of the unique and particular experiences that come from multiracial backgrounds, however a person identifies. And in many ways, there does seem to be a movement towards embracing that. Tyler Sloan has seen the early stages of this evolution unfolding. I would love a kid that looks like me, who's young, who's effeminate, who's mixed race, who's being told that they have to pick a culture or like pick something that's mono and see me who is in the multitudes of of gender, of arts disciplines and of race and trying at the very least to honor all facets of who I am and not just erase one of them. 
And so I will continue until I see a critical mass of change happening to always live in this mixed world, whether mixed racially, mixed gendered, multidisciplinary. I respectfully refuse anyone older or younger than me who tells me I need to be one thing. Living with an unfixed identity can carry certain incredible opportunities and deepen one's capacity for empathy. And it can also be imbued with certain burdens. But in talking it over with my little sister, I could see how she and I both didn't ever really see the harder aspects of the multiracial identity conversation until we were older. Because we were raised to be so biracially positive, if that makes sense. We're biracial. It's amazing. I don't think I quite, until I was older, understood the actual racial injustice that darker folks experience. I feel like that just took me a longer time because I was like, oh no, everyone who's a person of color is embraced in their identity in the way that I was. And that's just such BS. It's just such BS. And we see it on the news and we see it in police brutality cases and just all of that. I feel like I was protected from that for longer than I realized or longer than I should have been given my own identity. I don't feel like being biracial is better or conversely like it's worse or even easier or harder. But I do think, at least for me, it's been different. For me too. I feel like being mixed has given me a greater sense of imagination and empathy than if I'd come from a singular race. I like to think that one result of not having a clear sense of community myself has been aligning with more people who are outsiders across all social identities. I asked Tyla a question that I think was really helpful for me to ask, and her answer reflected my own feelings about my racial identity as well, and why it's been so essential for me to identify as both races and as something else entirely. Even though technically biracial isn't a race, I don't feel black or white. I feel both, but also distinct and different than my black or white monoracial counterparts. I feel like occupying the space between those racial binaries has given me access and flexibility that I could never have had without being biracial. When you look back over the trajectory of your life, how much do you think race has shaped your path? If you were to be monoracial, let's say, as opposed to biracial. Do you think your life trajectory would be vastly different? Oh my gosh, like I would not be the same person. I would not have had the same experiences. Yeah, I think my life would be totally different. I can like only think of the negative ways though. Like I think being biracial has been a really beautiful experience. And again, maybe that's the learning that I had when I was really young. I was like, you're biracial and you're so proud of that. And when people ask you what you are, it's because you're so beautiful and they're jealous. And that track is just like playing in my head. Of course, there have been challenges. And I think the biggest challenge for me is the reckoning of what am I if I don't look like anyone around me or something? And what does that mean? And where is my value? And where do I fit? And finding that belonging. So there obviously are negatives too. Do you still ask yourself those questions or have you answered them? Oh, I think I do. I think I will continue to do so. And I think it also changes. Okay, so maybe in college, I felt more... I don't know, like I knew my identity. I feel like you almost ask yourself these questions again when you enter new spaces. So I've been like newly in the working world. Well, how do I fit in here? And how do I fit in at a private school where I am biracial and I'm one of the youngest people here? And just all those things. I think you consistently ask yourself those questions when you enter new spaces. So I think I will continually be asking myself those questions. 
probably for the rest of my life. It might get easier and maybe I'll have just even a better understanding of myself as I get older, but I think I will continue asking those questions. We're continuing to ask those questions as well. Questions of ourselves and of this ever-shifting society. Because the demographics are changing, racial identity conversations will eventually have to become less polarized. I mean, they're already less polarized and becoming even more so, internally and externally. Based on census numbers since the year 2000, the multiracial population is growing faster than any single racial group. In 1970, a mere 1% of babies came from interracial relationships. In 2013, it was 10%. Still, it's a small percentage of the population. Here's Sarah again. I think, you know, the word biracial, multiracial, mixed race, whatever it is that's out there, it's not the most common category still, right? Even though it's this fastest growing youth group in the U.S. and all of these things, if you ask the average person to name out racial groups, a lot of people aren't going to randomly say multiracial or biracial. We'll say all the monoracial, monoethnic categories. Hopefully, as a result of more nuanced conversations around race and identity and self-conception, we can broaden people's understandings of racial identity to incorporate all the ways people see themselves and to encourage identity autonomy. Because that really is what we keep coming back to this episode and this season. Rachel Lauren summed it up perfectly. Probably one of the last things that I would just say is people have to be open to allowing individuals to say who they are and to stop telling them who they are. And I think that that actually speaks to what has created race in the first place. <laughs> I think that that's really the answer for a lot of this. We are so quick to to judge and to make statements and to try to tell people what it is that they need to be versus giving people the ability to say, no, this is who I am and this is what I want people to know about me. I think it's time that we give people the ability to have their own identity, <laughs> to own it, and to just respect it. Maybe when thinking about how we identify, it's not about any one philosophy or any one understanding of identity. Maybe what's most important is keeping an open mind and allowing people to speak for themselves and to show up however they decide to show up. Which may change in different contexts, different spaces, situations, and relationships, and different stages of our lives. Because whether identity is fixed or fluid, and it's different for different people, the point remains that it's important. And that we want to see people as they see themselves and to affirm others as they are. Thank you for listening to this episode of the On Being Biracial podcast. Be sure to subscribe now so you hear our next seven episodes and please rate and review the podcast. Thank you to all this season's interviewees. You can find their names on our website, onbeingbiracial.com, along with information on our partners and supporters. Special thanks to Mark Hugo Lopez, the Director of Spanish Research at the Pew Research Center, for sitting down with our incredible producer, editor, and fact-checker, Emily Previty. Thanks to Emily and her team at Covenda Media and Paul Kondo, our amazing editor and producer. And finally, thanks to the Philadelphia Journalism Collaborative, powered by Resolve Philly, for their significant financial support that made this project possible. And Gene Song, their Director of Collaborations. And thank you to everyone who has bought us a coffee so far this season. We'll put a link to our Buy Us a Coffee page in the show notes in case you'd like to contribute. But by far, the biggest contribution you can make is to listen and share. So thanks again. And until next time.